Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Today we get a chance to speak with Camille Young about architecture. Now she worked in Europe and America as an architect before she came to New Zealand after the Christchurch earthquakes. And we have a conversation that not only touches on architecture itself, but also on community building and what she's involved with now. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Camille. My purpose is to draw the creative potential in people and places. And when I'm doing that, my heart is singing. Mm. And so it doesn't matter if I'm working on OHO or working on, you know, the Hillary Institute work or, or Exchange or any of my other work across um, the, the city. Mm. Um, when I'm doing that, I know I'm in the right place. Mm. Yeah, that's when I'm really showing up. So I guess finding and understanding your purpose is, is a journey in and of itself. Mm. But once you've got it, it's quite easy to measure where it is that you could be putting your energy. Now, this is actually the 30th episode of Seeds, and I'm really pleased with the reception it's had. Thank you for continuing to tell other people about it. And I think rather than having a long introduction, we're going to get straight into the interview with Camille. So it's a pleasure to welcome Camille Young, who's the director of OHU Developments and Exchange, and is also involved in the Hillary Institute. Um, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me today. On this podcast, we talk about the word purpose, mm. but in order to do that, I find it's helpful to talk with people about where they're from, what their background is, mm. and try to trace things that maybe have been, been apparent through their life. Before we start talking about what you're doing now, it'd be great to hear a bit more about your background and where you come from. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in Aspen, Colorado. Um, a very small town at the time, 5,000 people, um, a tourist town. Um, so it would obviously, like Queenstown, sister city of Aspen, it would have quite a few um, coming and going tourism. It was safe. It was monoculture. It was extremely wealthy. Um, and it was like kind of Garden of Eden childhood in um, many respects. We were always playing outside and yeah, we went home when the sun went down kind of thing. It has a reputation, doesn't it, being an outdoorsy type place with the skiing and... That's probably why I'm still an athlete today. (laughs) Yeah, very healthy community, I would say. Um, And yeah, we were raised skiing and rafting and hiking and camping and Mm. such. Yeah, Mm. Yeah. it's great. Um, And then I was an exchange student in my sophomore or junior year in Portugal for a year, and um, which was a complete contrast to, let's say, my, my upbringing in Aspen, where um, it was very, very poor. And um, uh, Portugal at the time, it hadn't joined Europe. And so um, Lisbon, half of the buildings were burned out from a fire almost a century earlier. And um, I was going to school in what was very similar to a, like a chicken coop. Classes were canceled regularly because there was rain. And so many of the students that I was studying with that were in my same year were usually five to six or seven years older than me because they couldn't get to the classes they needed in order to graduate because they'd been canceled. So it was then that I realized I had such privilege and was so grateful. Mm-hmm. And so when I returned to Aspen a year later, um, and I returned to my studies and my life with a lot more um, uh, appreciation and really took from it um, the opportunities that were in front of me. Mm. And how, it, how was it that 
Portugal was the country that you went to. Like, had you been studying Portuguese or something? Or <laughs> no, actually, you, when you sign up for AFS, you put down five countries, and um, I, I don't remember what the other ones were, but it just happened to be one of them, and that was the lottery one that showed up for me. Mm. So yeah, and I loved it. I mean, I still speak some Portuguese. I spoke fluently when I left, but I think I was sixteen. And so it's kind of, it's residual there in the background. Mm. Um, my father lives in Brazil, so I do go to Brazil quite often. And, and um, yeah, I can pick it back up when I'm, when I'm there. Mm. But if you're tracing back to those early years, that was the, the formative moment where you were really, I guess your world had been expanded by going there, had it? Absolutely. And it was such a contrast. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it was one of the most formative moments of my early childhood life mm. because it it, uh, it was when I realized what opportunities were ahead of me and I also took um, was really extremely grateful for those opportunities mm. and then um, went on to college and studied architecture um, I have three degrees in architecture mm. and practiced architecture for 11 years um, I'm very obsessed about architecture um, and when did that start when did that obsession start? Like the 16-year-old self, was, yeah. were you into architecture at that point? Or was uh, no, it? not at all. Although Europe was certainly interesting and, you know, Lisbon was a stunning city, even with it, most of the buildings being half abandoned. Yeah. Um, actually, I was an artist before um, and I was doing a lot of drawing and a lot of photography, a lot of sculpture, um, pottery, playing in all the arts. And then when I was in college, um, one of my friends who I was living with said, uh, you're kind of an anal artist. And I was like, thanks, sort of. And he goes, have you ever thought of architecture? And I am incredibly rigorous and incredibly um, attention detail kind of, uh, kind of person. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went and took an architecture 101 class. And that was basically every single course, a new architect would come in and ex explain what their practice was about. Mm -hmm. So it went from urban planning to landscape to traditional home architecture and airport design and all these different architects from around um, the Boulder area. And I knew day one, I was hooked. I was like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. What was it that resonated so clearly for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, and it really was one of those pivotal days, which I can still remember today walking out of that class. Mm. Every single day of my life was going to be different, and I was always going to be learning, and I knew that I could travel with this profession and work around the world. Mm. And those were the reasons, really, that kind of drew me to it. Mm. Um, my father was building homes when I was very, very young in Aspen, and so I think there was also so probably some subconscious things in there mm. that, um, yeah, kind of maybe were a bit formative as well. Mm. Yeah. So what were the next steps that you took then? You, you um, took this course and then... Yeah, and then I spent five years doing my undergraduate degree in architecture in, at Boulder um, and then practiced for two years as an intern in Aspen doing homes. A lot of hand drawing, which I loved. It was before computers. Mm -hmm. And then um, at, during that time, I was looking for where I was going to do my master's. And in order to be a licensed architect in the U.S., I had to do a master's. Mm -hmm. But I started to research and there was a school in London by, by the name of the Architecture Association that would... Um, uh, basically where all the great architects pass through at some stage. And so I really wanted to go there um, and just be in and amongst it. And so I went for an interview. I went to London for two days. Um, I got a break from my work and flew there, went for an interview and flew back. It was really decadent considering I was probably 22 um, and felt like kind of strange and surreal. Um, and they accepted me. Um, and so I also wanted to make sure that I could be licensed in the U.S. And so I also was going to get a degree in the U.S., 
my degree at SciArc, which is Southern California Institute of Architecture, was um, accepted one year abroad, and my degree at the Architects Association was a year and a half. So in three years, I got two master's degrees, one from London and one from L.A. Mm. And those two schools were the exact opposite in the way of their teaching and thinking. So that was also really formative because I realized that we can be talking about the same thing but have very different strategic and um, uh, approaches to uh, a profession. And so one was very hands-on, one was very exploratory through materials, um, one was very um, artistic and expressive. That was um, the SciArc, and everything came out of the work- workshop and the woodshop. And then the AA was much more research-based. Let's understand where current trajectories are. Let's um, dig deep into, um, we were researching businesses and trying to figure out where latent potential was and then deriving an architecture from that. We were looking at new technologies and pushing paradigms when it came to computer technologies, doing a lot of animation. And so those two degrees, completely opposite, but also gave me a lot of tools for when I went on to practice as an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and is the study of architecture, is it what you anticipated it would be when you first started in? Oh, it was delicious. I was like the best student ever. It was so good. It was really hard for me to leave because I just loved learning. I'm still the same. Um yeah, um, I, I loved it. It was the place where you could just dream and, you know, bring your dreams into drawings and animations and storytelling. And Yeah, no, I was, I was in heaven. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And were the architects or the, the people who were studying architecture, was there uh, common bonds that unite people sure. who tend to study architecture? Or, yeah, or, or was there a diverse range of people, you know? No, it's pretty, uh, we're all obsessive, and we're all dreamers, and we all are thinking about possibility. And then there's some technical skills that we all mm-hmm. have to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's that we all enjoy sharing our dreams. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's good. The way you describe it, it sounds very much like an art form rather than a, a, rather than a job. I mean, in the sense of many people study at university or whatever in order to get a job which involves possibly <laughs> moving paper from here to there, yeah. sitting, hitting send on an email. But the way you're describing it, it's actually, a, a, it's almost an art. You're creating something new. You have a vision for the future and you draw it down and, mm. and help to create it. Is that? It's very much so true. Um, you know, with the exchange, I often say everybody has a creative calling. Mm-hmm. Um, my creative calling is evident. Mine's about urban um, future urban conditions and how the urban context works. Mm. And so I'm often looking at past trends, current current situations, and figuring out where we might be able to go in future. Mm. And so, yeah, that is very much so my art form. It's, vi- in, it's visioning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And so you've finished these degrees. What, what happens after that? Yeah. Um, so there was a, um, it's the second time the U.S. was going to war. And so they had Basically, it just it started right when I graduated my third degree. Um, and so all of the firms in Europe stopped hiring, particularly Americans, because a lot of the American projects canceled. Mm-hmm. And so I spent um, eight months waiting to get into one office. I really wanted to work in one place. And I had been offered a couple other jobs in London, which were big corporate offices. But I knew that if I was going to take a job that was average, I wanted to live in a great place. And I had lived in London. It wasn't where I really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept applying at the same office, and I was really persistent, almost to the point of annoying. And um, 
after eight months, I finally got an interview, and then I started working the next week. Wow. So it was a pretty quick once it happened. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. They, I think they figured that they, I wasn't going to take no. Yeah. And so they eventually just had to hire me. Yeah. Here's another application. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's and, written to yeah. us again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And what? why was that? You knew something about them, obviously, like well, it, it, you were drawn to that place. Yeah. Um, Rem Kulhas has certainly changed. Um, and, you know, like any art form, architecture is going through an evolution. And um, Rem certainly changed the kind of uh, future and uh, of where architecture was going in his career, mm. um, which had to do with, uh, he was a journalist until he was 35, and then he used that technique to do research and then derive mm. architecture. So he's very much so a critical um, architect. And a lot of his architecture ended up really changing how we thought and approached architecture. So I wanted to learn from how he thought, and I wanted to really understand how this office um, developed their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It, it just aligned with some of the thinking that I wanted to do. Mm. Crazy office. I worked seven days a week, five all-nighters a week, never left the office. Stressful, crisis, chaos, burnout. Like, it's just the epitome of boot camp for architecture, um, but also working on some of the world's most amazing, you know, paradigm-shifting architecture at the time. So I loved it. Um, I led a large urban um, master plan for Ghent, which is now, it was a competition, which is now uh, done and built. And then there was uh, a competition for the center of Paris. Um, There was four major architects participating, and I was leading this incredible project to redesign the whole core of Paris. Hmm. Um, And yeah, so it was really large, but very, very interesting visions for the future of cities and major cities around the world. Because you're thinking, it sounds like you're, given his background with journalism and researching like there's a lot more going on than just drawing a building isn't there as a like can you just talk us through maybe choose one of them maybe the paris one or Mm. or an example of the type or the process that you would follow i guess i'm curious about how that method Mm. played out in terms of what you end up with as the results these aren't short stories and they're (laughs) often very visual (laughs) <laughs> so I'm trying to find one that might make sense in a in a short order. Um, often, and so the way that uh, OMA and um, particularly REM approaches work is to try to figure out where the crisis point is. Where is the thing that looks like it's just about to break or has already broken? And it's usually inside of that that we can discover opportunity and potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and still, I mean, certainly a big reason why I came to Christchurch is the massive crisis, but that's also on the back of that there's a huge um, uh, opportunity. Mm-hmm which people often say, well, OMA was really no different. And so what we would do with each project is we were looking for where the latent potential was, and we were often moving towards where it was that the breaking point um, Mm. was an issue. So for the Leal project, um, uh, it's the core of Paris, and it's where literally, uh, I don't think it's like 8 million people move through there daily. There's a major highway, major parking, major underground um, infrastructure, you know, 10 Cineplex, Metro, Um, parking, you name it, but you don't know it's there. And so then you have this park above it that was actually suffering from drug use, prostitution, uh, crime. And on either side, you had the Pompidou and the Louvre. And so you have this very strange paradigm where you've got these three very disconnected um, areas. And so we started to look at what it was that was necessary to try to bring, um, to connect them. Mm. So we came up with a concept called uh, acupuncture or flacon, which means small perfume bottles. And we drilled holes down to create visual and um, physical uh, connections below ground and above ground. Mm. And we broke up the area into a more human scale. So um, a lot of the 
Paris had been designed in a way that was quite large and grandeur, mm-hmm. and um, and particularly this area meant that you didn't feel safe. And so a lot of it was, okay, so how can we connect these? And so we came up with a, a series of diagrams to explain the problem mm. and then to offer a solution, which, strangely, that kind of thinking is extremely useful as an entrepreneur. Right. Um, it's, they're, they're similar, which is why entrepreneurship is so easy for me. Or, yeah. Yeah. Possible for me. I wouldn't say it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's difficult for anyone, isn't it? Yeah. But I think the thing that you're pointing out is that you identify the pain point. Um, yeah. Because I think in entrepreneurship as well, if you if you identify the pain point of whatever industry it is mm. that you want to change, that's the key thing. Yeah. Because if you go to an investor and say, I've identified the pain point, there's a real need here, and mm. I have the Tylenol to, to the, fix it, yeah. you know, that's very different to going to an investor to say, I've got this sort of nice idea. That's right. It's like taking a vitamin. Yeah. You know, it's not really necessary, but maybe it'll do something like it. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. There's lots of similarities there yeah. with your process. What I really learned with OMA was how to approach, let's say, um, architecture and urban design through formal solutions, mm-hmm. which is how do you change the form of a place. But what I'm starting to move into is how do we actually understand where is the, I call it the invisible structures or the social structures, mm-hmm. and allow those to drive architecture. So mm-hmm. I think REM was incredibly formative up to a certain period, but I think we've moved into a new age of architecture, mm-hmm. which is what really brought me to Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we're moving out of a formal design-driven urban context mm-hmm. and into much more of a social, um, invisible, um, infrastructure-driven design process. Mm, Interesting. Well, let's come back to that in a minute. How long were you there working in Europe doing these sorts of designs and things? So I worked with OMA for two years, but it was probably more the equivalent of five, given the hours that we all put in, and burned out, um, and really had uh, to have a huge step back. Mm. And then I walked the Alps for three months, um, Mm -hmm. snowfall to snowfall, and thought about what I wanted to do next in life. And I thought I was going to give up architecture. Mm. Um, I thought, okay, I've been to the top. I get it. It was hard. Challenge. Next challenge. And while I was walking, um, I bumped into somebody who was working in a Herzog and Demeron building, which is another um, reputable architecture firm in the world. And he said he loved working in this building. And it was me that just shifted me. And I was like, you know, if I'm really true about what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to create places where people really love to be. And I remember him hearing him say and just crying. I mean, like, ah, oh, I've got to go back. <laughs> so, and that's in fact what I did. And so I went and I applied with Herzog and Demeron, who is known for their uh, incredible aptitude with materiality and true um, design development. And I practiced with them for another five years in Basel, Switzerland, um, and really learned about um, iterative design process and how do you do a really deep and intense design investigation. Mm. And so you do that with every single design decision. You'd study it, make a careful, considered decision, and then move to the next design decision and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, And, And you mentioned the word materiality there, that that was an important part. I don't know enough about, enough about this. What do you mean by materiality? Yeah. Um, So REM's work, by comparison, was diagram and form and and kind of really kind of large uh, formal investigation. But he didn't really, well, they, I should say, didn't really develop materiality as much, which is what is the actual material the buildings are made out of, Mm. 
Whereas Herzog and Demeron, their investigation was often also very formative and very um, kind of groundbreaking for architecture. But they were starting with the materials and trying to investigate where the real potential was in materials today. Mm. So often any of their buildings, they're using materials in ways that um, it's pushing the edge of that potential of the material. So if it's brick, going, how can we stack it differently? Or what is its true um, stress potential and otherwise? Mm. And so we did ceramics. We, we worked with metal. We worked with every material you could imagine. And we were always pushing to see what we could actually test with it. So much more material-driven investigations and mm. design. And is that partly about telling the story of the structure that you're creating as well, like that the material is, is yeah. part of it? I mean, I guess it's, I, I designed the, the palette pavilion, the Gapfeller palette pavilion, mm-hmm. and you'll see that my thinking that then lent to that pavilion was very much so that what I borrowed or grew on developed while I was with Herzog and Demeron, mm. which is you take a material and you test it to its end. Right. You really understand where its true potential is. And so we, we played with that by using a material mm. when stacking them in a strange mm. kind of form mm. and creating space with that. Mm. So you'd, you'd had quite a variety of experiences by this point in terms of styles um, of architecture. Yeah. What informed your next steps or where you were going to move on to? Yeah. So I reached a point I was no longer learning. And I promised myself, and I um, and often say that I, I, keep, I, I tell myself it's time to move on if I'm no longer learning. And I knew that I was never going to be able to have a practice in Europe. The financial crisis had happened mm-hmm. um, in 2007-8, and I, it was 2010. And I had stayed for those two years because half of my friends in architecture were unemployed. And I was too afraid to leave. And I was like, this isn't the reason to stay. Um, and so eventually, after five years, I just knew this was, it was, I was frustrated. Mm. And so I decided to take a sabbatical. Um, and then I actually just didn't return, um, which was understandable, understandable by them. And we, it was very amicable, but, um, I was looking for where I could start a 21st century architecture practice. And I knew I couldn't do it in Europe because of the financial crisis. Visas weren't being offered to Americans and I was always going to have to work for a large corporation. So I was going to try to find somewhere where I could put to test what I had learned. Mm-hmm. I also knew, after having lived in Switzerland and Colorado and um, London and such, I, it was really important to have a close connection to nature. London was very hard for me because I couldn't be outside in the mountains and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, Rotterdam, too. Um, so those two were really critical. And so I started looking around the world. Mm. And I was like, all right, I need like-minded people. I need somewhere where I can put to test what I've learned. And, um, yeah, I need somewhere I can start a practice. Um, and, and so I just started searching. Mm. And a friend of mine invited me to teach a course at the University of Auckland. This was before the earthquakes. And then the earthquakes happened. And he said, would you mind if we shifted the, and focused the course on Christchurch? And I said, no problem. Mm. That'd be great. Mm. But I'd never visited Christchurch. I'd never visited New Zealand. And I'd never taught. Mm. So before the course, I came to Christchurch. And it was 2011 um, in August. And it was devastating. So I had left my job six months earlier. I can remember the dams crying on a bench going, I'm so insane, what am I doing here? And I'm in this post-apocalyptic city going, this is way too big for me. I've bitten off more than I can chew and I'm totally alone. And it's snowing and it's cold and yeah. And, um, and then I started thinking about what it was that I was really looking for. And on that park bench, I realized everything that I was looking for was right in front of me. And I often go back to that park bench um, and think. <laughs> Is that it still there then? It's yeah, a Hagley yeah. Park. It's under a uh, camellia tree. Um, 
Anyway, uh, so that's when I decided I was meant to be here in Christchurch, and, huh. and this is this was the path. That wow! Was in front so of me. sitting on a park bench in Hagley Park, yeah, you had that revelation. Yeah, and I went from crying to laughing and jumping. And if anybody was watching, they probably thought I was insane. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah, quite a contrast. Was, yeah, and it was funny because I kept trying to bring myself to what is it that I'm looking for? If this isn't it, where am I going to go next? And right. just trying to keep myself going. Mm. Um, and then I remember rattling off the things I was looking for, and I was like, oh, my God, that's right here. Uh-huh. And it just it's kind of disguised, I mean, really disguised, because right. the city was so intensely devastated. And I had never seen anything of that magnitude, and it mm. really took me. I mean, it was two weeks where I was, qu- I mean, I was shaking. It was so mm. hard to see. Mm. Um, an experience and mm-hmm. um, you know just that level of devastation the yeah. city under a cordon and because for people who are listening who weren't here I mean that was like how many months after that's like only three or four months yeah. later isn't it so yeah yeah it's a, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a yeah, very very challenging time yeah but then I went on to teach that course yeah and yeah. sorry just before we talk about that so you're sitting there on the park bench and you start smiling and laughing mm-hmm. <laughs> um can you just describe that moment a little bit more? Because I'm just curious. I'm always yeah. curious about points in people's lives well, <laughs> when things change. It was also my birthday, which right. I was probably not sharing. Um, and I, you know, it was, it was, it took a lot to give up my job at Herzog and Demron, and it was a great job. I loved the people. I was working on the world's best projects. You know, people just don't get those kind of opportunities. My friends thought I was insane. My family thought I was insane it's not going to get any better than this, don't leave there. And there was something that I knew I just wasn't going to be, it wasn't my home. Mm -hmm. And I knew I needed to find one. Mm -hmm. And I knew I needed to be able to have a a place to test what I had learned. And I was, I didn't want to always be working for, I wanted to be working with and Mm -hmm. or um, Mm -hmm. set up a practice that meant something to me and I thought could make a difference. And so you found that as far away as you could possibly get pretty much from, from Europe, on a park bench in Christchurch. You know, I mean, after working in these global firms, the world actually feels pretty small. Yeah. Um, so we had been traveling a lot around the world and we had projects around the world. Sure. Um, so it wasn't hard for me to imagine going somewhere anywhere. And mm. I was looking all over the world. I was looking in Brazil. I was looking in Canada. Mm. I was looking in Asia. And I was trying to find uh, where, where these ingredients were that I could really put to test what I yeah. what I had developed in my in my yeah. thinking. And there, Christchurch losing, you know, so much of its main its city, and also having such incredible resources to rebuild with, it was going to build in, you know, five years, what we would have otherwise seen in 30. Mm -hmm. And my art form is urban. Mm. And so that's actually a really unique opportunity when this is my art form to see how much can be done in a short period of time. Mm. You get to, unfortunately, when things happen over 30 years, it's very hard to assimilate, and it's very hard to see. It's actually so slow that you actually just adjust to it. Mm. But when it happens in such a short period of time, you can much more easily notice and see what's Mm. actually happening. Um, So it was an incredible opportunity for me. And it wasn't, I mean, I had already lived around the world, so it wasn't hard for me to pick up and live somewhere else. Yeah, no, I kind of get that because, as you know, I've lived in other parts of the world. And I used to work for an international law firm where there was... 55 offices so I was in the London office and then they sent me to the Tokyo office and then I was in the Sydney office and you know so I I get it Um, but it still is just an amazing thing to me that you were based there in Europe and probably this is your friends and family reaction right that you're you're in Europe you've got a high-flying job and then you find yourself in Christchurch which has just suffered a major earthquake and you start telling people no this is where I want to be so what, what were some of the reactions from people? 
<laughs> Are you insane? <laughs> yeah, it didn't actually make sense to anyone. It does now,、mm. but most people were were just like, okay, well, we're we're behind you. We care about you. Yeah, do what you need to do. But if you want to come back, it's okay. I remember Jacques coming up to me when I when I came back to tell him that, that I wasn't gonna shock、um, from Herzog and Demeron. Um, um, he was like. It's okay to go. It's also okay to come back. Right. And we really want you to come back, but we understand. And、yeah. so I, I was like, "Thank you very much." It's just, it's actually easier to leave when you know that somebody cares about you.、Mm. Somehow. Yeah, I, I I can't really explain it. It just I just knew I had to do it.、Mm. Well, I'm glad because we're sitting here having、yeah. a conversation, and you're still here. So that's、yeah. wonderful. I think it's great that、um, Christchurch has had a number of people come in post earthquake、yeah. to be able to. Be part of the community. Be part of a building、yeah. of something that's different and new. So it's fantastic.、Yeah. Just before we get into that sort of going to Auckland and what you、mm. were doing next, can you just describe for me,、um, from your perspective, like some of these big projects that you worked on as an architect? Where's the point where you, I guess, which part is it that you're, you realize that it's taking the shape that you had designed on a piece of paper? You know, like some of these large ones that you're talking about, is it when you walk through the doors, or do you see it being constructed, or is there a point where you look around and go, "This was the vision that we had," you know, months or years ago? It's interesting. I think、um, in architecture we use the term concept, and、mm. in entrepreneurial world we use the term purpose. They're、mm. actually synonymous across those two worlds.、Um, I was often on the concept design. And so I, I think of it a lot like putting DNA into、mm-hmm. the thinking. It sort of guides the whole project. And if you do that really well,、um, what happens is every one of the contributors, whether they're the, you know, the the contractor、um, doing the stairs or they're the engineers doing the landscaping or whatever, they all have the same concept to work with. It guides their thinking, and then they can kind of wrap that into their own work.、Mm. That's when you know you've really landed it. It's not that you know exactly what it's going to look like at the end.、Mm-hmm. It's that you you can see the concept has come through,、um, and that's certainly what I learned with both Herzog and Demeron and OMA. It was about really having clear, clear concepts in the、mm. inception of a design,、mm. and I'm still very much so at that. And that's also why I'm kind of the instigator of these different、um, mm. on, uh, business ideas. Because I'm, I think a lot in that concept level、mm. or、mm. purpose. So the detail itself, that's fine, but it's more the the catching the wind that's going in the right direction that you're there able to set the sail and、yeah. move and bring people along on the journey to wh- whatever it is that it becomes. It guides the decisions.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why why this one over this one?、Mm. Well, because of. It's not. I feel this, or you feel that. It's actually this is what we've agreed that we want to achieve,、mm. and that's、um, very much so. And that, that transcends into this for-purpose、mm. um, business world that we are in today. Yeah,、oh, that's great. So we're up to the point when you're coming to New Zealand, or、mm. so you went to Auckland to do some teaching. teaching. Is that right? So yeah, that's actually what brought me here.、Um, Derek Kawiti、um, invited me to teach a course at the University of Auckland,、mm. um, and we called it Future Christchurch.、Mm. Um, and then I gave a lecture about my work that I had done in Europe, and、um, uh, I was asked to stay、um, and continue to teach Future Christchurch. That、um, continued for two and a half years,、um, and then immigration told me I couldn't do that any longer、um, because it was an entertainer's visa that I was on, which was meant for people that were coming for a convention or something. Right. And they had stretched it because of the earthquakes, but it wasn't the appropriate use of the visa. So I ended up leaving teaching because、um, I couldn't. And I wasn't going to take on full-time work at the University of Auckland. So for two and a half years, 
I um, flew on Monday up to Auckland, taught Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then flew down. Mm. And I wasn't allowed to have any other work mm. so because of immigration restrictions. So I volunteered a lot of my time. Mm. And I ended up doing work with Gap Filler. That's where the Palette Pavilion came from. We started incubating the idea of Studio Christchurch, mm. which was about creating, um, uh, kind of bringing all schools that had architecture and or related disciplines, mm-hmm. students to Christchurch to develop ideas related to the rebuild. Mm-hmm. We did that for five years. Um, and so all of this was born out of that um, kind of, I would call it time outside of my teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just started, I couldn't help but get involved in too much because it was after the earthquakes and so much was happening. Mm. There were so many needs and so many good ideas coming yeah. out. Yeah. And it was just easy to kind of get in among them. Mm. Yeah. And then we had... The Christchurch Transitional Architecture Trust, which then we started FESTA, the Festival of Transitional Architecture. And that became a huge deal for um, several years and took quite a bit of resources and time Mm. um, bringing together an Mm. event that would just celebrate all that was transitional. Mm. Yeah, and trying to bring an awareness about architecture. Mm. I think that was really something that I was behind in the very early years was, okay, in order for us to have great architecture, we're going to need a desire for it. Mm. And so how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to have to have a conversation about it. Mm. So that was how FESTA was born. Um, with Jessica Halliday at the helm, and mm. then, um, and then of course, the Center of Architecture and City Making. Mm. So how do we actually continue to have a discourse? How do we actually make sure that you know there's a place to have an open public conversation and it and develop an interest in what is um, architecture today? Mm. Mm. That's great. And what uh, just picking up on that, someone like me who's not an architect and doesn't really understand exactly mm. what involves. What are your messages? Because many people listening would be in that boat. What are some of the things that you'd like to encourage them to think about when it comes to architecture? Yeah. How do you feel in space? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I think the, 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 fortunately there's so much opportunity in New Zealand. Most of, uh, I think, our landscapes and our buildings are undesigned, um, and they're not really considering the experience that one would have in a building and or in a public space. And so I think that we have so much room to grow, really. Um, There's a few architects that have done some what would be kind of beautiful projects that are great to look at. But um, I'm less interested in something that's good in a magazine, and I'm much more interested in things that actually we where we love to live or where we love to go and meet people or Mm -hmm. something that heightens our experience of life. Places do that in ways that people are probably maybe less aware of, and it might be interesting to just notice when you're in a place that somehow influences your being. Mm. And I think architecture has a huge potential to do that, and urban design. Mm. Which you can actually see in some examples of architecture, can't you? You know, like, I'm just thinking of one in Barcelona, Mm. you know, like the Sagrada Familia. Sure. Like, just an amazing thing that kind of draws your eyes to it. You can't avoid it. Yeah. And it definitely, for me anyway, I did the tour of it, and Mm. just walking through and seeing the high ceilings it immediately elevates my own thinking sure. to rather than an enclosed space, you know, and yeah. trying to be economical. And yeah. 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 I mean, and, you know, in that era, in that age, well, that one, went, that building went on for centuries. Um, but in the cathedral era, the intention in architecture and the kind of where, where we were at that age was um, to create buildings that were inspiring, mm. particularly towards a godliness. Right. Architecture in the, the century afterwards was more about commerce. And mm. so our, our buildings ended up like our banks were beautiful and shopping centers became beautiful. And in this last era, it was more about your public buildings. So you had, you know, the iconic museums um, and 
some public spaces became quite important in the way of their design. Mm. I think where we're going and the work that I'm working on is how do we actually create what I call connected space and how do we bring together what has been separated in this last century and in in careful ways so that people meet in a comfortable way because mm-hmm. a lot of what happened in what was in the production age, this last age, was everything got separated. Mm-hmm. So you live in one place, work in another, play in another. And in this age, I call it the age of belonging for lack of a better term yet, but I think it's a lot about connecting people again. And so that means bringing programs, bringing functions that have been separated back together. Mm. Well, I, I want to dive really deep into this. Is mm. there... A, I know that when you first um, were here in Christchurch, you were also involved in exchange. Mm. Can you just describe maybe briefly what that was? Because I think that laid a foundation for some of the other things you're involved in now. Yeah, so um, the exchange is my first foray into business and startup and trying to develop a language. Mm. Um, I didn't know what purpose was or actually I didn't even know how to hold accounts or write grant proposals or anything. Um, and so, yeah, it was a little bit like, let's dive into this. Um, and uh, during the work that I was doing with Studio Christchurch, it was really evident that the, in the earthquakes, um, we had lost all of our affordable space um, for uh, creatives. And if you look at a trajectory of a city 10 or 15 years down the line, if you don't have space for creatives to develop, you'll have a very dead city because it's the creative practitioners that often bring vibrancy and life to a city. So my thought was, is we're going to need a place. And there was a huge number of people post-earthquake that were very creative, but we were trying to work in our garages or in cafes, and it just wasn't conducive nor perm- nor um, for long-term development. So um, a group of us got together and we said, well, let's rent a warehouse. And um, that all sounded fine and good, but finding a warehouse in 2012 was that was standing and structurally sound was impossible. Um, and so that actually took me two years. Um, and the group that I'd started out with and the group that ended up, it was gone by the time that I ended up um, getting this warehouse and off the ground. So it ended up being a little bit of a solo mission in the beginning, just because so much changes over two years, especially in Christchurch at that period. Um, but I found a warehouse and the Christchurch City Council had set up grant, um, Creative Industries um, grant, and they um, helped me with the fit-out and some early operational costs so I could hire people to run it. Well, I thought, warehouse, creative's done. And I thought I could just <laughs> go on with my life. Well, it turned out that was not the case. And so what I had to do is figure out how to make this thing run. And I had then quite a large liability, obviously, having to pay rent and five-year lease. And so the moving parts were going to be a bar and a cafe, a showcase space, and production space. And the idea was is that people that were in the production space would have an opportunity to share and showcase what they were working on, and the bar and the cafe would bring people in, and then that would be a, a kind of a, a, a financial model that could keep the whole sustaining. Well, it turned out the people that were working in the production space didn't really want to use the showcase space. And so we had to, we had to change quite a bit there, mm. and we had to find, um, a, let's say, wider reach of who might want to use the showcase space. Mm. Um, It also became, this is actually also where I learned that you don't start with your purpose, you discover your purpose. Tony Chamberlain taught me this one. Um, Yeah, what was his quote? It's so good. Um, You don't don't craft a purpose, you discover your purpose. Mm -hmm. And certainly was the case with um, exchange. So I learned that um, the exchange was really about supporting early creatives to develop their practice. And so that's where our byline came, um, Mm -hmm. which is cultivating a creative ecology. The production side is a big, open, messy um, studio space mm. for anybody who's creative in some way. 
and it's changing monthly. You kind of never know what's going on. Creatives have a tendency to be quite explosive, so you can see there's a lot of noise. Um, and then the showcase space was for creatives who actually had something to share, but had never had a place to do it. So we've had a number of first shows for um, artists. Mm. And some of them have gone on to get their own studio spaces. And so they've, it's actually really worked in the sense of a stepping stone into um, developing a strong creative practice. Mm. And the bar and the cafe um, brings the public in. Mm. And um, that's probably where it's been the hardest to learning, just because running a hospitality um, is extremely expensive and mm. very, very challenging. Mm. So, um, yeah, I had to learn how to create what are actually three very different businesses and how they might intertwine. Mm. And um, fortunately, the team around that, Preston, uh, an ex- exceptional team, um, really leading that. Mm. And, um, yeah. Well, I'm sure what I'll do is uh, I'm... I haven't asked him yet, but maybe mm. we can ask Preston if I can chat to him oh, because yeah. I think it would be a great conversation about how that works because I've been to the venue many times, as yeah. you know, and um, just walking in and seeing you can get the food there. There's an exhibition on. There's people over there doing creative things. Like it's a nice, it's a nice yeah. feel of a, of a venue. Yeah, and I, maybe for this interview, you'd skip what I just said and let Preston say. And really the one thing that I would say about the exchange is it's where I learned how, business of course, but how to build a community around a purpose. Mm. And so if the purpose is around cultivating a creative ecology, how does the space actually align to that purpose? Mm. And so that's really what I'm taking into OHU. You're building community first, and or in parallel usually as well, and then the building comes. Mm. It's not, it's not uh, you know, a building and then you fill it. Mm. And so th- I think the exchange for me was, uh, after the Palette Pavilion were two light bulb moments of going, okay, so the future of architecture is about bringing people together in places, and how do we do that well? Mm. Well, that brings us nicely to OHU. Yeah. So if you don't mind just explaining what that is, you know, like what's the full name, for example, and yeah. and what does that stand for? Yeah, and I have to pronounce it properly, otherwise I get in trouble. It's called OHU, um, mm-hmm. like awesome, um, and that's it's a Tadeo um, mm-hmm. uh, word, and it means people working together. And it also stands for Office for Holistic Urbanism. So it very intentionally, it has a bicultural meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about building community by building buildings. Uh, we, we, we've found that there are a number of communities that want to collectively own assets, but they're often held back by the same things um, as we were. It's how do you do property development? Um, what are the financial structures? What are the legal structures? As you well know, that's very challenging. Um, but the core, which I think is at the nut of it and at the heart of it, is the social structures. And so how, and what I noticed in Christchurch over these last five, seven years now, um, is the people that ended up taking the helm of these communities, so they often under-supported, and they're often working on um, intuition, and you could see a lot of burnout happening. Now, my feeling is, is if we're moving into a century that's about connection and belonging, um, the community builders... Um, are going to be critical to the di- to to the infrastructure of these future cities. So our last centuries um, were shaped by architects and developers and engineers and planners. This next century, I believe, they will be shaped by the community builders. And so I think that that's a skill that we need to carefully tend to and carefully develop, and um, probably move past an intuition and into a kind of a, a culture. Mm. So what would that look like in your ideal world or say in 10 years from now if somebody had an idea for a project? What, how would that play out, do you think? Well, it depends on what community. So 
if a community was to show up, it, the first question is, is what is your core purpose? Like what is holding you together? And the definition I use for community, because everybody uses it in so many different ways, is a group of people working together on a common purpose. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as you understand what the common purpose is, you can actually grow from there. Um, yeah, and let's say um, uh, if it's a housing group, okay, well, it's, it's so we can all provide, have affordable housing. Um, or if it's a, um, yeah, the exchange is a good example. It's a group of people that want to come together around a creative purpose. Okay, so how do we actually do that? Um, what, are the, what are the social structures? How, who are the people that are really showing up? It's event organizers, it's producers, it's the staff themselves, it's the, you know, the kitchen staff and otherwise. Um, and how do they all fit into this ecosystem so that you can then create an architecture that really supports their connection? Mm-hmm. And then really draws out their true potential. Mm. Which comes back a bit to that second job you had where you're almost journalism, um, you know, investigating Very much so. whatever the project was. So there's yeah. a there's a connection back to your yeah. past, isn't there? Very much so always looking for the inherent or what I would call latent potential mm. and trying to figure out how to tease that forward. Mm. And I guess the extra dimension that you're talking about is that it's the community being involved. Um in providing input on what it is that they want to see. Yeah. Over this last year, what I really discovered um, OHO has the potential to be, it's about wealth distribution. And so where I see community, and this is, sorry, this isn't directly answering Mm. your question, but it comes to it. Um, What we've found with property development today is that, and or most businesses today, is they privilege extraction. So usually what happens in an extractive financial model is that a few people make a whole lot of money. It's Mm -hmm. super oversimplified. And a lot of people make very little. But in the idea of a community-owned asset, it's an equitable distribution of wealth that then um, serves to keep a community thriving and uh, more than surviving. And so where I think we're actually moving to with this, we call it disruption in property development, is how do we create financial models that equitably share wealth so we start to look after the whole? And if we can get this right and different community groups start to form, what, we will, what, what I envision will happen is we will all belong to many communities and we will no longer have a traditional job as such, but each of the communities we belong to will be giving us some form of a return, whether that's in food or in money or in you know, um, other, other forms of return. Mm. Um, and so what I think what we're doing right now is laying the very early infrastructure for how these communities can actually work together, uh, and, and trialing that through small, um, property development. Mm. And I guess one example that I've seen that we've talked about quite a bit is the involvement of people who are working for Ahu. Yeah. And how do you equitably compensate them That's beyond right. just a salary? Yeah. <laughs> and that raises different, because, you know, putting on my legal hat, that raises yeah. different questions. You know, when you're talking about ownership of a legal entity, how, yeah. do, you, how do you match it all up? But, um, yeah, and how many rabbit holes have we been down trying to solve that question? It's, it's a wonderful question. How do we share wealth equitably over the lifetime of a company? Mm. And it's one that I ponder quite regularly. So far, what I've come up with is that everyone in the lifetime of the company is paid a thriving wage. Mm-hmm. And so what we're researching right now is what is a thriving wage? What's right. that value? Mm-hmm. And then make sure that we've documented literally every hour that it takes to create OHU um, and mm-hmm. all contracts so that if, in fact, we change the thriving wage five years down the line, we, we back pay everyone mm-hmm. so that it's equitable and fair for the whole lifetime of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
after that, after we've paid everybody the thriving wage and any investors um, their money, all of the profit for OHU will be going towards purpose, which is to build communities. Mm. So I don't think we'll be creating a company that's high profit, but we will be creating a company that can, um, uh, let's say, offset its operational costs. Mm. And that's the real aim. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things that we've talked about is like making templates or open sourcing materials, yeah. for example, legal contracts or documents, that's um, right. which uh, obviously is a different way of doing things. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you and you you probably know better than I, but um, many of our legal documents can cost tens mm. of thousands of dollars, mm. um, especially some complex ones. And moving into collectively owned assets is a, is a relatively new territory, depending on what it is mm. that we're trying to share. There are some forms that exist, like co-ops and otherwise, that, mm. that you've taught me about. Mm. Um, but I think as we move into an age where it's around collective ownership we can also start to share knowledge. Mm. And so hopefully when we have this, I call it a library of documents around collective ownership, mm. we can build up on knowledge and also critique and mature. How can we make it better? The problem with this coveted um, information is that it's very hard to learn from each other and mature together. Mm. So I think so there's some exponential learning that can happen when we open source um, how we're doing what we're doing mm. and benefit the whole, really. Mm. And being transparent about it rather than closing it off and saying, well, yeah. this is my thing that I own. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> Trying to take a wider view of, uh, of ownership, really. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. And sometimes that's contagious. And sometimes people take the ideas that work for them, and then they try to bring that back into the business-as-usual world. We have that mm. a little bit happening, mm. um, certainly around. But that's okay. That's a kind of a part of change. Yeah. It's yeah. all a learning, isn't yeah. it? Journey. Yeah. Is there anything else about Ahu that you'd like to say? Um, I guess coming to purpose. Mm. Um, the purpose of Ahu, where we've started, and again, mm. it's one of those things that will discover mm. it's um, oh who's only been around now for a year and I think it'll probably take us I'm guessing five years before this will be um, just because building buildings is slow and building communities is slower so it's mm. a, a slow development yeah. but where we're starting with our purpose is there's three of them um, it's uh, building community by building buildings which is really what I learned from the pallet pavilion mm -hmm. that was less about a building and much more about the community that we built together um, and remarkable um, moment for me when I understood that that's possible with buildings. And then the second one is about creating connected places. And so the exchange is a really good example, production, showcase, and the public exchange. And then the third one is equitable distribution of wealth. And that's our biggest nut to crack, really. And it's a very hard one to crack because our structures, our current um, financial and legal structures aren't set up that way. So those are the three that we're moving with. Um, my sense is in a year or two, they will shift and they will mature and grow into something. Mm. What we're working on right now, because it's early days, is three kinds of projects. Um, projects that we support. Um, the Canterbury Environment um, Hub is one of them. And uh, they've asked us to develop their business plan with them. And that's 40 org um, environmental groups that want to co-locate. So those are the kind of groups that are showing up that need some support to get over these like mm -hmm. four different um, hurdles. And then the other kind of projects are partnership projects. So something like the community solar grid. We would love to work with people who have that technology and partner with them and develop a concept. Mm -hmm. And then there's projects that we lead. 
And so that would be uh, Colette's Corner, mm-hmm. and that's in Littleton. And we bought that property and will develop that property and are currently in, um, kind of sharing with the community different ideas that we've heard that they want. And then that will be crowdfunded with the community and then invested in, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, by local um uh, citizens. So we're just exploring all these three trajectories. Yeah. We're a tiny little team and um, all working very, very hard. I don't think we can continue all of them forever. So mm-hmm. one of them will probably end up dominating. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's an exploration. I call, I call it the formative phase. Mm-hmm. And we're still really learning about what, what it is that we'll be showing up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very exciting time for yeah. us because there's so many. It's amazing the people that show up when you say this is what you're going to be doing. Yeah. So, yeah. And that was because we had an email exchange saying, should we have the interview now or should we wait a year or two, yeah. you know, like see what comes. But I said, no, actually, let's do the interview now because then we can do another one. You know, in a couple of years, we'll be yeah. able to track it and it'll be fascinating to see how things have changed or developed. Definitely. Know? Yeah. Where I'm standing now, I can imagine in three years time won't look anything the same. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And just coming back to um, your life and just thinking through you know, maybe if you could give your, yourself some advice, you know, going back in a time machine here, let's talk to yourself who oh. loves to draw, but has never heard of architecture. You know, the, yeah. the your friend who said, oh, you should look at architecture and you're going to that first day or that first course that you went to that you thought, this is what I want to do. Is there is there anything that you'd say to your younger self that you wish you'd known now, looking back? Or so interesting. Um, I, um, very personal. Um, I'm very hard on myself. I have a really what I would call a strong inner critic. Um, I would I would I would go gently. Mm-hmm. Be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a more enjoyable journey. You don't have to change the journey, but just. Be kind to yourself. You, it, you don't have to suffer this one. Try to try to enjoy it a little bit more. Mm, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the than... ride. <laughs> rather than you know, it's it's. I have this image of somebody flogging themselves as they're going. Yeah. And instead, I think it could have been carrying roses. Right. You know. <laughs> Maybe laughing a little bit more. Yeah. And, exactly. Yeah, I, time. yeah. My mission right now, the thing that I'm trying to um, manifest in this year, is to move towards joyousness. Right. So it's a little bit of that kind of like, okay, let's loosen up the, the inner critic and, and try to cultivate yeah. another voice. Just relax a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things will work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. No, that's good. And um, we talked before we started recording about the importance of quiet and mm. um, reflection. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about that for you? Uh I'm I'm probably um, if there's a spectrum of you know one to ten an introvert I'm uh, an extreme introvert, mm-hmm. um, and so really for me to settle and to dream and to kind of imagine I need a lot of quiet me time, which I um I, I take I mean I live alone and um, my holidays I often spend alone and really enjoy it. It takes a little bit of getting used to because there's always that fear of should I be with people or should I be with my family? Mm. But it's about, um, you know, two or three days into a quiet personal time that my mind really rests and it really gets, it's where all of my kind of creative thinking and it really stems from those kind of moments in my life. Mm. Uh, and so I, 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 I carve out space for that. And mm. it's very, very important to me. Mm. It sounds like it's almost a meditative or reflective time for you that you can just slow down and Yeah, and it's think. like daydreaming. Right. And, 
you know, as soon as you put a meeting in place or as soon as I have a dinner with somebody, all my energy goes out. Right. And I really, it takes me a long time to bring all my energy back in mm-hmm. and then to allow that to be um, f- full enough that it starts to be cultivating a thinking. Mm. Uh, it's very much so like daydreaming. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So in where you're at now, what does that word purpose mean for you? You know, this podcast is called Talking Purpose. And, yeah. Um, my intention for it is just to unpack with people what, what purpose means. And so I'm just curious. So, yeah, thank you. Um, and this last year I was working on, um, let's say, how do you solve, um, uh, let's say, equitable structures and really spent most of this year doing that. The year before, I had given myself the intention of trying to figure out what my own purpose was. Mm-hmm. And so I often take years to do strange intentional investigations. In that year, I discovered my purpose, and it took a solid year of really hard work. I'm surprised mm. at how hard it was to discover my own purpose. But I came out the other side, having worked with Anaki Goodall mm-hmm. on his exhibition. It was there, there that I saw it um, emerge. My purpose is to draw out the creative potential in people and places. And when I'm doing that, my heart is singing. Mm. And so it doesn't matter if I'm working on OHO or working on, you know, the Hillary Institute work or, or Exchange or any of my other work across um, the, the city. Mm. Um, when I'm doing that, I know I'm in the right place. Mm. Yeah, that's when I'm really showing up. So I guess finding and understanding your purpose is, is a journey in and of itself. Mm. But once you've got it, it's quite easy to measure where it is that you could be putting your energy. Mm. And it's almost the way you describe it. It's almost like the detail of what you're doing doesn't matter as long as you're aligned with the overall intention there, which is to draw something out of other people. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we set up all these businesses and then we think the business is the purpose, Mm. but ultimately that's just a vehicle, Mm. you know? Mm. And so uh, those are, they're, they're... And it actually echoes back to something you said earlier about architecture itself that you do all the planning, you set the DNA, mm. and you, you, because uh, I think I asked, is there a moment when you walk in the building or something that you go, yes, we did it, but you were more like, no, we get people on board and we head in the same direction. Yeah. And we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like at the end, but we're on a journey. Mm. And, w- and then when we get there, that's what's satisfying. Yeah. yeah. And you can really tell in a building and or in a business mm. if the purpose is, hold- is being held. Mm. you know, because there's something magical that happens. Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I just want to say thank you for coming and speaking with me today. It's been a really interesting conversation because we've touched so many different topics and we've been all over the world as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I think just listening to you speak and about your love of architecture, but then how that, you know, that discipline learned in different styles, different ways of doing things, how that's now informing your entrepreneurial journey. Mm. I think that's really something that I hope listeners can take note of because mm. sometimes we read business books or you know think that all the wisdom is here, but actually there might be other areas of life that we can draw, draw from. wisdom from. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming in today. Well, thank you for interviewing me and having me here today. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Camille and learning about all the different things that she's involved in. I know for me, living in Christchurch, I'm seeing firsthand some of the things that she's started, like the exchange. And it's really exciting to hear about AHU and all that it's doing. I look forward to watching as it develops. Thanks for joining me today. And don't forget to check out some of the earlier episodes, because this was the 30th one. Until next time.